And this is where cryo-EM really comes in. So the word cryo-EM refers to imaging entities of biological interest or perhaps even of material science interest at cryogenic temperatures using electron microscopy. And this word cryo-EM, I don't think really existed two decades ago. So for a long time, there was the view that electron microscopes and cryo-EM in particular was mainly good to look at large things because these were large particles, large images, you could align them. And eventually that uh, has changed now. We can look at almost anything of interest uh, in biology Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we will look at personalized medicine through a biophysics lens and will dive deep into the world of cryo-electron microscopy, also known as cryo-EM. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sriram Subramaniam, the founder and CEO of Gandiva Therapeutics, a company that uses cryo-EM and machine learning to advance drug discovery and development. Sriram is one of the world's most renowned experts in the field of cryo-EM. He was the first scientist to show that protein structures at resolutions of two angstroms could be determined using cryo-EM methods, and also demonstrated for the first time that cryo-EM can be applied to visualize drug binding to clinically relevant targets at atomic resolution. Sriram spent more than three decades in biophysics research, working at Stanford, MIT, MRC, and NIH. Last year, he founded Gandiva Therapeutics, applying that vast research experience in structural biology to solve problems in precision medicine. Sriram, it is an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alexander. It's a great pleasure and honor for me to be on your show. And I look forward to the conversation. Great. I would like to start with your story. Can you please tell us what got you interested in biophysics and how has that interest led you to the place you are at today? Yeah, thank, thank you for asking. Uh, actually, probably the most defining feature of my education and career has been that it has been interdisciplinary. Uh, my undergraduate education was at a place called the Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur. And uh, there my degree was in chemistry, but uh, the training that uh, I and others had was in multiple fields. We were trained in engineering, in math, in physics, and in chemistry. And to date, you know, that kind of foundation has been profoundly useful uh, to me in my own work. I then came to Stanford to do a PhD in physical chemistry. And there again, although my PhD is in physical chemistry. Much of the work uh, was at the interface between physics and physical chemistry, particularly condensed matter physics 
uh, I became very interested in phase transitions at that time. And uh, that was, once again, you know, a lot of learning in new areas I had not worked in before. And uh, following that PhD, I uh, was exploring multiple options and uh, eventually ended up at MIT, uh, switching fields completely to work in biology. I worked with uh, Professor Hargobind Korana, uh, a very famous scientist who uh, won the Nobel Prize for uh, his un unraveling the genetic code. And at that time, uh, when I joined his group, uh, his attention had shifted to working on proteins. And Gobind was uh, deeply interested in actually understanding how proteins worked. And he was agnostic to actually what, uh, how you went about it. And his own training was in chemistry and biochemistry, but he had uh, a very broad view of you know, how one went after it. And at that time, when I joined his group, I was probably the, the only one with this kind of physics slash physical chemistry background. And he tolerated me, and it was a great, great learning experience for me at MIT uh, to be exposed to the world of biology and how you know, people worked on these problems. Because at that time, I had almost zero exposure to anything that was in biology. Uh, at the end of that time, uh, I, ha I was looking to you know, begin my ac academic career, and I ended up at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, and there again, I had this naive idea, which <clears throat> looking back, looking back uh, I don't know why I was so convinced that you had to do something completely new that you had not done before. I mean, because as you know, today, you know, even the people that leave my lab, you generally advise them to stay a little bit close to what they did. but. Uh, I then decided that I was very interested in understanding how fruit flies worked, and particularly in the context of the vision in fruit flies, and of course, bringing some biochemical tools to look at it. And that was an exciting time uh, early on, but uh, I was quickly losing interest in working with fruit flies at a time when the science was actually going quite well. You know, we had uh, the unique thing we had in my small lab at Hopkins working on fruit flies was. Uh, I had been trained in biochemistry and fruit fly research largely uh, was driven by people that did molecular biology or mutagenesis or uh, electrophysiology, but there was not much biochemistry. And uh, because of my training at MIT, I thought this is a gap that exists and we could work on, you know, carrying on biochemistry on whole eyes, uh, fruit, fruit fly eyes, which was... Uh, uh, really interesting technical challenge, and we, we got to be very good at it. But pretty soon, uh, it became clear that there were far more mutants that people were interested in me doing biochemistry on than you know, my own interest held up. So I uh, was looking to uh, leave, leave this field and you know, looking for the next interesting thing. And uh, before I joined Hopkins, I had uh, an opportunity to work for six months at the Medical Research Council uh, Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. I knew Richard Henderson at that time, and he uh, had invited me to spend a few months. And that had a transformative, transformative effect uh, on sort of my thinking about protein structure. And even though I had never directly worked in protein structure, it was clear that these people at the MRC, uh, they thought deeply about it. And Richard was... Uh, one of the few people in the world at that time, this is now 20 or 20 plus years ago, who, had, who was deeply committed to using electron-based imaging to get a protein structure. And I found this exceptionally interesting uh, in terms of 
how it could be applied, but I was working on fruit flies, so it was something that they did, but not what I did. And once I was looking to, you know, looking to the next uh, next phase of you know what to do, uh, I thought that using electrons to interrogate biology more broadly. And at that time, I was really thinking about using electrons to image large things, whole brain, the imaging of uh, fruit flies or whole cell imaging. Uh, not so much at that time looking at individual proteins, but that was a, f- a faraway dream. It was I- ideally, if you, did, if you knew how to do these bigger things, my thought was eventually we would get to proteins. So I left Hopkins and uh, Richard was uh, good enough to uh, let me come uh, for some time uh, to, to work, uh, uh, work on actually applying and learning some of these methods that they had been developing at the laboratory. And that's a, it's during my time there that the NIH was looking for someone to, uh, someone to bring structural biology expertise to the NIH intramural campus. The NIH intramural program, as many of your listeners will know, is separate from the NIH extramural program. And the intramural program uh, scientists are uh, funded essentially to do high risk and potentially high reward science. So we are allowed to take um, many more risks and to do things that may not be easily funded in the outside world. And throughout the time that I was at the NIH, I think the things that I was doing would not have been funded in regular grant proposals because simply because they had not been done before. And I could not actually show any preliminary data to show the feasibility of these things, nor could I show my own credentials in having worked in these fields uh, because they, they were all new at the time. Uh, but when I was at the when I was in Cambridge, uh, I was uh, one of the few people that was interviewed for this position, and somehow uh, I managed to persuade them that this was a good thing to do. That I, I was convinced that using electrons to image biology, uh, be it tissue or cells or viruses or molecules, was a good thing to do. And even though I hadn't done it, I think I had deep conviction that this was this is something that should be done and they you know i guess they they took a risk and they funded me very generously for uh, nearly 18 years uh, where, where i was at the nih where i could continually evolve and continually uh, d- develop new new methods to go forward and you know we began re- really with working on uh, finding ways to use electrons to image biological tissue uh, being at the national cancer institute I was very much interested in finding ways to do this, and we then ended up developing focused ion beams uh, as a way to actually look into large things like cells and tissue. And at that time, I was familiar with these methods in the semiconductor world, but we brought them over to biology, and this was the first application of using focused ion beams. And that field, as you probably know, is now uh, uh, extremely useful in whole brain imaging um, there's many, many, many tools to do this and lots of information that's coming out. And, you know, we, our focus was to actually look into cancer cells and very much driven by the idea that looking at these cancer cells in 3D at resolutions one to two orders of magnitude higher than what you could do with a light microscope would be important and that it could be somehow leveraged to better understand the origins of uh, what makes a cell cancerous and, and not. Eventually, from that, I moved to working on viruses, and we spent nearly a decade working on HIV, uh, in part because uh, the, uh, 
there was a real gap in structural biology of HIV in that in, in the late 2000s, uh, there was tremendous information on the individual proteins that made up the virus, but there was virtually no information on the three-dimensional structure of the entire virus. And unlike uh, symmetric viruses where electron microscopy had made great progress, envelope viruses like HIV or influenza or SARS-CoV-2, these are uh, pleomorphic viruses, meaning that every viral particle is differently shaped, differently sized, has a different complement of the spike proteins on the surface. And I thought this was a great challenge to use electron-based imaging to go after the structures of these whole viruses that were capable of infecting cells. And we began to develop methods in electron tomography to tackle this problem and focused in on using a method called subvolume averaging, meaning that we would collect uh, three-dimensional images of whole viruses and then pick out computationally the volumes that corresponded to single spike proteins and then average them computationally to get structures. And this led to uh, the very first uh, description of the three-dimensional structure of the HIV spike protein. It was a paper I'm very proud of. It was published in Nature. And uh, it led actually to a new way of thinking about uh, vaccines for HIV that were based on the entity that was displayed on the surface of the virus, a, a trimer. And that's very much what we see in uh, today's SARS-CoV-2 viruses. These are trimers. Uh, but that was, uh, that was a great time where we, uh, we looked at structures of many different HIV strains, many different antibodies bound to them, understood what it, what it takes for an antibody to bind and neutralize the virus and what happens to antibodies that bind but don't neutralize. So we learned a lot about this aspect of virus structure. And also using focused ion beams, we learned uh, exactly how viruses jump from one cell to another. What is the nature of transmission from a dendritic cell to a T cell or from a T cell to another T cell? And it was an exciting time where we were learning virtually with every new experiment. We learned something that we didn't know before about the, uh, the, the milieu in which HIV transmission took place. And about that time, uh, we were also constantly working on methods to get to higher and higher resolution. And the revolution in uh, electron microscopy was driven by many, many developments, certainly better hardware, better software, but the development of detectors that were uh, able to collect movies as opposed to single shots and also have uh, much better detectors. These are called direct electron detectors uh, which let us actually count the electrons being scattered by the specimen, as opposed to letting them hit uh, a phosphor that then emitted light, which was then uh, imaged by detectors. So these developments uh, suddenly brought into view that this long, our long-standing dream of going after proteins at high resolution was actually now possible because of these advances in microscopes and detectors and software. And we pivoted to working on protein uh, imaging. And this is where cryo-EM really comes in. So the word cryo-EM refers to imaging entities of biological interest or perhaps even of material science interest at cryogenic temperatures, typically close to liquid nitrogen temperatures, using electron microscopy. 
And this word cryo-EM, I don't think really existed two decades ago. It was There was electron microscopy, there was three-dimensional electron microscopy, there was electron crystallography. But uh, the word cryo-EM gradually, uh, you know, be- became, uh, you know, came into use initially driven by the great success uh, scientists had in imaging whole viruses, icosahedral viruses with electron microscopes. And th- those were... Uh, some of the early uh, and you know impactful advances in showing that you could get to near atomic resolution on these very large things. So for a long time, there was the view that electron microscopes and cryo EM in particular was mainly good to look at large things because these were la- large particles, large images. You could align them, and eventually that uh, has changed. Now we can look at almost anything of interest uh, in biology. Uh, to, to a point, uh, really small proteins are still difficult to image. But nevertheless, once these methods uh, that let us do cryo-EM on uh, proteins uh, that were not huge viruses became became possible, uh, that was transformative for, for work that work in my own lab and also across the world in many other labs. And for us, the major sort of exciting breakthrough was in 2015 when we showed that we could get uh, a three-dimensional structure for a protein called beta-galactosidase. It's a bacterial enzyme at resolutions close to two angstroms. And almost uh, nobody thought this would be possible at that time, including ourselves, because we just didn't know enough. We didn't know enough about the theoretical underpinnings to know if it could or couldn't be done. And there certainly was a view at that time among many in the field who are experts in physics that there would be some some limit to the resolution that you could get with electron microscopes, maybe three angstroms or so. But uh, we just didn't know enough to be worried about those kinds of uh, limits. We just, just kept plowing through. And when we got to those resolutions, that was a major breakthrough because that showed us that you didn't need to crystallize proteins. You could just take them in solution. And I'm certainly happy to speak more about exactly what the technology is later on. And there were two other advances the following year, 2016, that really uh, changed the landscape, uh, certainly for me and for many others in the field as well. One was to show that it was not just whole proteins that we could visualize at these kinds of two angstrom resolutions, but we could visualize small molecules, drugs, bound to these proteins also at these kinds of resolutions which is a game changer because in drug discovery, uh, which X-ray crystallography had led the, led the frontier in for structure-guided drug design, the ability to visualize small molecules bound to proteins is exceptionally powerful. And if you can get this kind of information without having to grow a crystal or be limited to which molecules, when bound, allowed the proteins to still form a crystal, that's a game changer because now we could look at native protein complexes. And uh, this was a very important development. We published this work also in, in, in science uh, in 2016. And then the other advance was the recognition that we could determine not just structures, which is, uh, sort of, which is a very static thing, but to map conformational landscapes, meaning that we could, watch the, we could get uh, snapshots of the movie of the protein doing the thing that it normally does, functionally relevant things, uh, where we would go from one state to another. And by capturing some of these snapshots, we could, we could actually gain insights into 
how this machine worked, how these proteins worked, what what were the key key changes in structure that let it do the job that it did, be it, as, be it an enzymatic reaction or talking to other proteins. So those uh, with these three pieces, uh, the fact that we could get to two axon resolution, the fact that we could visualize small, small molecules bound uh, to these pro- proteins of medical, medical interest, and the fact that we could observe uh, the dynamics of these proteins. I mean, with that in place, I felt completely convinced that the next decade, uh, our task was to translate this and begin to show that these advances could be uh, could be relevant for superior drug design. If you could use this information, uh, I, I thought then, and believe even more uh, uh, more firmly now, that this will be uh, this will really transform the landscape of the kinds of molecules we can make, and also the quality of these molecules. So the next couple of years at the NIH, I, you know, my my team and I focused on showing that these methods were applicable not just to our test protein, but we worked on uh, many many classes of molecules that were targets uh, for drug development, transporters, ion channels. Uh, metabolic enzymes, DNA protein complexes. Uh, and in each of these cases, uh, we, you know, we understood what it took to get to, uh, you know, get to atomic resolution, get to get the kind of information that might be relevant <clears throat> for drug design. And that's when, you know, these were, it was great. Uh, they were great academic papers. You know, we had in this 2016, 2017 or so, we had maybe a uh, you know, close to ten uh, in that in that area in in that era of two to three years, maybe ten papers in Cell, Nature, and Science, and others in very good journals. But you know, my view then was uh, it's time to actually go beyond impact factor, which is what uh, we we were getting good at to impact. You know, what do we have to do to get to develop medicines that actually impact uh, patients that need these medicines, and what does it take to make societal impact? And much as I loved being at the NIH, uh, being in the government had definitely had restrictions in terms of how to drive this in an entrepreneurial sense. And uh, that's the journey that brought me to UBC. And I was looking at several places in the U.S., but uh, the University of British Columbia uh, had a very progressive view. Uh, there was, uh, I came in with funding from the government and uh, philanthropic donors that believed in this mission that personalized medicine uh, is the future, and that any information you could you could obtain that could move the needle in terms of making better drugs, uh, making them more quickly, making them more effective, that this was this was the future. So the program I lead at the university uh, is a program in cancer uh, cancer drug design, and the goal of the program really is fundamentally translational. The uh, it's to actually bring it to the patients. And it's on the back of this investment that the university and the donors made and the Canadian government made that I raised my Series A, uh, $40 million last year to launch Gandiva, led by a really fantastic slate of investors who uh, really have taught me a lot, who believe in this vision. And uh, that's, anyway, that's a long, somewhat long story of how I came to be here. Yeah, wow, but that's an amazing story and and thanks uh, a lot Sriram for explaining it so eloquently and guiding us also through the history of of CryAM and uh, what it evolved to be today and what a powerful tool it is, uh, especially if you think back how we used to um, 
determine protein structure before using crystallography, using NMR, and, and what kind of landscape of new opportunities the cryo-AM opens for us uh, in that regard. And I'm very curious um, if you could elaborate a little bit more on the application of cryo-AM specifically for the development of those personalized drugs. How can we leverage the power of this tool to truly unlock the personalized medicine? I think what uh, the advances in cryo-AM have taught us is that we are able to get high quality information at atomic level on proteins that were previously thought to be intractable to conventional methods such as X-ray crystallography. X-ray crystallography has been the mainstay of structural biology for many decades now. And from X-ray crystallographic studies, we have learned a great deal about protein structure and also about the binding of small molecules to proteins. However, the limitation is that we can only observe binding to sites that are retained in the context of a three-dimensional crystal. In other words, if there are flexible regions of the protein or very large conformational changes that might lead to disruption of a three-dimensional crystal, those are not observable by X-ray crystallography. So in some respects, uh, the challenge here is that it's a little bit like the story of uh, a drunken person looking for his lost keys under a lamppost. And when somebody asks him exactly what he's doing, the answer is that this is where the light is, and that's why he's digging there. So while very often both experimental and computational science uh, uh, involve experiments where we have to look where the light is, it's what's really important is for us to take the light to where the problem is. So our view of personalized medicine is, let us get the information correctly and quickly uh, on the things that really matter to accelerate drug discovery. And so our focus is to look at protein-protein interactions, where proteins communicate within a cell, and to not blindly go after active sites of proteins to essentially inactivate them. There's uh, quite a lot of success in that arena, but to really understand exactly where we can influence protein behavior most effectively. And Gandiva's platform really is based on uh, essentially using this really powerful tool, cryoEM, but it's just a tool. You need to know where to dig uh, and what you do with the information that you get out of it. So in the gold rush, uh, analogy, uh, we are combining so three pieces, which is to know where to dig, use these powerful tools at our disposal, computational and experimental, to get atomic resolution information, and then to leverage that information to drive the design of molecules that have the desired therapeutic effects. So it's, it's a, yeah, so it's very much work in progress. Uh, and Time will tell how, 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 how successful we are. Perfect. And you alluded already to this combination of, of cryoEM and uh, machine learning and computational uh, part of, of equation. How important actually is uh, machine learning in analyzing that vast amounts of data that you are getting with cryoEM, specifically perhaps for those protein-protein interactions? Yeah. You know, I think I'm saying something that's perhaps obvious to all, which is, 
the advances that have happened in machine learning and artificial intelligence are just mind-boggling. What is clear is that we are now awash in very large amounts of data that cannot be analyzed by single human. This is not the era of say, two, two decades ago where you could sit down, look at the results, results of an experiment and just figure out uh, manually. I think we are now, we have to learn how to look at incredibly large amounts of data and machine learning thrives on uh, being able to find patterns in, in, in data in, in data that of, of all kinds that, that we get. And uh, I see the impact of these tools in machine learning uh, and more generally artificial intelligence across the board. We see value in, uh, in terms of understanding biological networks. We see value in looking at protein structures, structures of uh, collections of proteins, we look at impact in analyzing, uh, analyzing the data that comes out, uh, uh, connecting them to clinical, uh, sort of clinically useful data that, uh, and how and to, look, to understand how that's connected to the basic data. At the same time, we also use it to improve our process in terms of collecting data, you know, get, getting more data uh, that is of higher quality in shorter time. So, I think the impact uh, we see at Gandiva is across the board. And this is uh, true across the industry. Uh, I think you, it's difficult to find companies, that, any, anybody in this space, uh, be it biotech or tech bio, that doesn't use uh, AI or machine learning in one form or the other. Speaking about collecting those large amounts of data, I'm also curious about the business side of things and how you approach uh, this from the commercial standpoint. So do I understand it correctly that Gandiva offers them services for other pharma companies to understand better the interaction of their potential drug targets uh, with um, uh, molecules uh, in the human body, or you are trying to develop some novel pharmaceuticals from scratch yourself? Gandiva is a drug discovery company. This is our sacred mission, I would say. We are focused on developing uh, better drugs using information that uh, we obtain using our platform uh, and I think that is, uh, without doubt, our primary mission. Uh, so there are programs that we have internally that we have selected uh, that are really selected from the viewpoint of uh, enable, ensuring that our methods are likely to yield uh, superior drugs for these kinds of targets. So that is certainly our primary uh, primary interest. We're also open very much to uh, conversations with uh, strategic partners, pharma companies, uh, some of the large biotech companies, to find ways in which we could accelerate discovery in a meaningful uh, commercial partnership. And those conversations are underway as well. So I would say that it's very dependent on the type of program, depends on the types of targets, but uh, we are most definitely not uh, a, a, a contract research organization providing cryoEM services for the simple reason that it's just a piece of the larger uh, sort of the la- larger focus of Gandiva. In terms of application potential of, of cryoEM in the broader therapeutics landscape, do you see it being used predominantly for the development of small molecule drugs or there is also potential, for example, in biologics or maybe even larger gene and cell therapies uh, later on as well? Our first few programs uh, are more focused on small molecules, but biologics represent a great opportunity. And indeed, you, we, there are so many examples now, especially in the context of uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2, 
there's a lot of insight in these structures uh, of antibody-bound spike proteins uh, that can be leveraged to make better vaccines, to make better antibodies. And uh, similarly, it could go well beyond uh, looking at uh, looking at small molecules and biologics to other things. Uh, we certainly, nucleic acids are within range. Looking at R- RNA as a therapeutic modality is you know, coming, potentially coming of age now. Uh, and beyond that, looking at uh, cell-based therapies, some of the methods I described to you earlier on, which I was involved in developing, uh, such as the use of focused ion beams to look at whole cells, look at cell-cell contacts, they may become very relevant. They're, they're not really industrialized. They're, they're much more complex at this time. So I think they're not, not yet ready for prime time. But uh, one could certainly image, envision in the broader sense that electron-based imaging, when combined with light and combined with other modalities, perhaps also with mass spectrometry to get chemical composition, uh, this is a great future where all of this information can be used to drive uh, what our dream is, which is to make personalized medicine truly pers- personalized, which is to actually make it precise, make it uh, effective. And I think that that is, I think, a great future. Technologically, I think there's certainly great potential to bring all of these kinds of medicines uh, to the patients. And, you know, I, I do expect that imaging will play a very important role in that. Since we're already on the topic of the future, I would like to ask for your prediction for the next decade of uh, personalized medicine and perhaps the role of structural biology in it. So what are the three developments that you see happening or would like to see happen in these fields uh, over the next decade? The important thing is for precision medicine to be just what the words say it is, for it to be precise. And that's a future that uh, we need to work towards. It doesn't really exist at this point right now. And this is where I see great value for artificial intelligence and information that's actionable. And uh, in, in, in the case of uh, drug design, that's atomic resolution information at the places that matter, the interfaces where communication takes place. So we've, uh, we feel that you know, at Gandiva that this is where we can make a contribution to... Uh, bring you know bring closer to reality uh medicine that is precise and responsive to the patients uh patients needs at that time and you know it doesn't matter actually what the uh, what the context is it could be the context of resistance to drugs which uh, is a very common thing that we see or it could be emerging infectious diseases uh you know in the case of uh an interesting thing which i should have mentioned this, when I came to the university and we were setting up this facility to do cryo-EM, uh, we, had a, you know, we had these plans set out for the building and then we got hit with SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 hit us. Uh, so we had to build through, this, through, that, through that period of the pandemic, get the microscopes installed and pretty much carry out the work. And the university uh, told us that all, anybody that came to work Actually, I think all of British Columbia had this uh, guidance that you could only come to work in a lab like uh, at the uh, like ours if you work directly on COVID nineteen. So overnight, we switched to working on COVID nineteen because this is what would get us get us to work, get us build the lab. And uh, in the last year or so, we have determined structures of virtually every every spike variant that's come out. We may have done close to a hundred structures. 
Uh, we were the first ones to report the structure of the N501Y mutation in the UK variant. And uh, as we worked through all the various variants that came out, then at the end of last year, we heard about the Omicron variant. And, you know, we within, we got to work on it. And within six days from having the gene in hand, we posted the structure and functional assays and utilization. I think that was a paper published in Science earlier this year. So it's opportunistic. But I think the critical thing here is we could bring to bear atomic resolution information at the junctions uh, or protein-protein interaction sites that mattered. We wanted to know, well, why is Omicron so much more infectious than the previous variants? To understand that, we needed to look at the interaction of that protein with the cellular receptor ACE2. Similarly, now we've just done work on BA.2. We want to know, well, why is BA.2 taking over from BA.1? So what's different about uh, this variant? And we're looking at antibody evasion, you know, which antibodies can bind, which ones cannot bind. So it, it, this ability to move quickly and responsively, I think that's perhaps one of the uh, most important things that will enable the future of precision medicine. But there's other things that I think uh, will also have to, you asked for three things, so maybe a couple of other things. It should be more integrated. Precision medicine is not just uh, drugs, uh, or small molecules of biologics. It's, you know, the cell-based therapies, there's genetic medicine. Uh, there's a much broader uh, set of tools. And I think for it to be successful, it would need to be integrated. And this is the job of the field as a whole. The clinicians are part of it. It's, I think, uh, collectively, as a, as a community, we need to look at precision medicine, not just through the lens of, you know, a drug that can be given to a patient, but... Uh, you know, to ensure that we can use all of these tools at hand. And finally, I think the, the length of time that it takes to get a drug is just too long. We need to find ways to shorten this. And perhaps it means uh, trying, you know, really new and creative things, such as coming away from uh, this extensive ritual of animal testing that we do, maybe more uh, inspired ways of using uh, organ cultures or other things. I think it's that future is has not is not so clear, but it's clear what I I think it's important for us to work on those things in order to find ways to get these medicines to patients that need it more quickly. Perfect, Suram. There are a lot of young PhD students and postdocs who are listening to this podcast who are perhaps also thinking about starting a biotech company on their own or joining an existing biotech company. What type of advice? would you give to those young listeners of our show? A few things I would say is to be persistent. You know, these things, it, it, it took me a while to, to get, get to this place where we have, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a team team of people working collectively on a vision that we share. And I think that that persistence is probably one of the most important uh, things in, in this business because it doesn't always work out the first time. And also I would say it's that, you know, one of the things that helped me a lot is to have uh, have and continue to have the association of very smart people. I mean, I have a lot of advisors, a lot of people I talk to that all bring uh, their own perspectives. Of course, you know, you, you don't have to do what somebody else has done, but uh, the greatest dangers are the unknown unknowns in the sense of, you know, not knowing what you don't know 
is, uh, is, is a real risk. So the more you work to educate yourself and understand uh, what the landscape is while following your passion and dream and to be persistent, uh, I mean, there's no, there's no single formula but you have to really want it. You know, we, you know, you know, we, this, I mean, we used to, used to use this expression, fire in the belly. It's just, you, you have to really, it has to really drive you. And if it drives you, then eventually things will happen, but it always takes longer than you think that it should. Perfect. And before I let you go, one last question. Where can our audience find you online in case they would like to reach out? Well, we have a website for the company, Gandiva. It is uh, very simple. It's Gandiva.com, G-A-N-D-E-E-V-A.com. The word Gandiva itself uh, is actually a very famous uh, bow in Indian mythology. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it, the name comes from, uh, you know, the, it's, it's a bow given to uh, Arjuna uh, from the gods. And its special feature is that it came with, two quiver, quivers with an inexhaustible supply of arrows. And, you know, the reason why I selected that name for the company is that this is how we view precision medicine. Uh, we see an inexhaustible uh, sort of supply of uh, things for us to, uh, to use, uh, to go after these uh, various, various diseases. And the other unique feature was that uh, these were arrows that could be customized for the enemy that the you know that he was fighting arjuna was fighting so i think many of those uh, ideas i think very much resonate with us in terms of precision medicine and how we see us customizing uh, therapies to the patients that actually need those therapies anyway that's at gandiva.com there's some information on what we do who we are and what kinds of problems we work on perfect yeah and now we know that the Early evidence of cryam were already mentioned in the ancient mythology. Uh, <laughs> yes. Perfect. Suram, thank you so much for, for this amazing interview. Thank you for your time. I think we've learned a ton from you. Uh, I'm sure our audience will love this episode. And thank you for really guiding us um, step by step through the evolution of cryam and how it's changing the world of precision medicine. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Thank you very much. Have a great day and until next time.